Today's subtitle, we're studying David's restoration uh, prayer, his prayer for restoration to fellowship with God after his gross sin with Bathsheba and concerning Uriah, her husband. And I'm not asking today, or not saying that everybody is a work in progress, we are, but I am asking, what do you want? As you read Psalm 51, as you meditate on it, think about what he's saying through this psalm, it's very evident that David's focus is not his material circumstance. It's not his wealth or his position or his power. And it's vital to catch this because we're all stuck in our bodies and we have to eat. We have to sleep, and that means someplace horizontal, unless something has gone horribly wrong. You need a horizontal surface that you can sleep on in peace and in security. You need the necessities of living in this flesh, in this life. It's hard. But David's prayer really has nothing to do with those things. And it's helpful in the same way that the Proverbs of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes are helpful. Because you and I are not like David in our experience. We're not the top. We're not without want. We have a need to provide, and we have to go work on that need. We have to. David has got it covered. He's the wealthiest man in his country because he's the king. He sends the army. He is the great warrior king, but he sends the army to go fight the war because he can afford to. Because he's got not just physical material wealth, he's got political wealth. He couldn't be in a more powerful position where he can just yeah, send the army. And he trusts his subordinate generals to do what he tells them to do. And, and he, he's not worried. He's so wealthy in so many ways. He's got it figured out after the flesh. And he fails horribly in that circumstance where he's wealthy and happy and, and comfortable. But he's not comfortable. He's not satisfied. He's not content. So it's a challenge for us today because we can't say like David that we don't have material needs we have to take care of constantly. And I'm not saying David was a total Lothario. I'm just saying he was comfortable in a way that most human beings will never be this side of eternity. If I could only cover this debt, if I could only you know, have this little bit of breathing room. If I could just get through this one thing, then, then I'd be okay. Just take that all off the table. David doesn't have any of that. He's got everything he could possibly want, but he's not satisfied. Because the one thing that he doesn't have when he's looking at Bathsheba, when he's sending for her, when he's doing what he wants, when he's killing her husband, the one thing that he couldn't possibly have is fellowship with God. He couldn't have an actual, vital, personal, give-and-take relationship with the God that had called him a man after his own heart. And that's the challenge today as you consider David's appeal, David's request. He doesn't say, don't let me not be king anymore. Don't, don't take the crown off my head. He doesn't say, don't... Uh, don't take the food off my table. He says, don't take your spirit away from me. Restore me in your presence. And so 
it's just a few verses to grab some speed for the place I want to preach on today. We'll just read. We'll remember our poetic structure. Behold me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. The summary of the verse, of the poem, is your character versus my character. I need cleansing. If you look at me, I'm wretched and, and dirty and defiled. You have the love and compassion. So on the basis of that, that personal character quality you have of your chesed, your loving kindness, and your compassion, your racham, your compassion, clean me up. Clean me up, Dad, is the request, because I'm defiled. In this is the theology of cleansing and defilement. The theology of righteousness for us is often portrayed as perfect cleanness versus defilement, moral uncleanness. And when you talk about it being unclean or defiled and wretched, that's disgusting. Let's bring some sights and sounds and smells into this. I'm a stinking, rotting mess, and I can't do anything about it. My sin is what it is, and here it is, and I can't undo that sin. And before you, I'm very noisome. That's a big word. It means stinky. <laughs> That's the attitude. And it's on God's grace, God's basis, the basis of God's character that he makes his appeal, just like in 1 John 1, 9. In verse 2, thoroughly wash me from, in, from my iniquity and from my sin cleanse me. Remember the poetic arrangement on the outside, the request on the inside here, the focus is his sin. And so you put the, these two together and you get this beautiful doublet, this beautiful collection of ideas that it's about my need versus your character. So we focus on God's character in verse 1 and God's work because of my sin. And so there's a great contrast, I hope you can see, between verses 1 and 2. And the contrast is my sin and God's care. My character, God's character. A lot of people are in competition with God. And they don't realize, they don't have the spiritual sense, they don't have the revelation of God that they've received, that they've welcomed to understand what he's like, to even have any clue that they're way out of bounds, that they're as sinful as anyone else in their inner person. Because we're born this way, as David will say. But David is well aware of this, and I believe this is why he's a man after God's own heart. He gets, at least, when he comes to himself, when he's thinking in his right mind, if you will, he's thinking of the character of God as the object of worship, and he has no self-righteousness. This is what we're made for. This is a relationship with God. He's expressing the knowledge he has of God, the personal, interpersonal, knowing God, because he wants that fellowship with God that that, that knowledge is designed for. There's a lot of talk, there's a lot of controversy always about everything. One of the controversies of my life that I've seen is, is people that want to take, line up on whether we should confess our sins as believers or whether we shouldn't. It's a big thing pastors get wrapped around the axle about. One of the great uh, sermonizers, great preachers of the 20th century, in his sermon archive you can listen to his sermons on 1 John 1.9. 1.9. 
If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can hear this great pulpiteer of the Southern Baptist Convention preach the same sermon over 60 years of his ministry. He did it three times, and it's in the archive. And, uh, I mean, I repeat too, but he did it three times, and you can't tell, and the, the verse was 1 John 1, 9, you can't tell whether it's for a believer or for an unbeliever. It's like a, he's teaching a general sense of confessedness, which we get from David's psalm. We get this attitude of, I'll never be there perfectly righteous, as it were, in my, perfectly acceptable to God in my flesh, in my attitude. And I'll always be needing God's grace. And it's a great message. But 1 John 1, 9 is by the Apostle John to believers. And what people miss when they say, well, Christians don't need to confess their sins because they're already forgiven of all their sins by the blood of Christ, which is true. They are forgiven of their sins by the blood of Christ. But there is the issue of fellowship with God, which is only for believers. What we're talking about is the believer's actual walk by the Spirit, the enjoyment of the life, not having the life, but enjoying it. And not making that distinction is a historic error that... I believe is one of the great problems of the sanctification model in Reformed theology, that, they, that you can't differentiate whether someone has life or is living it. Well, if they don't live it, then they don't have it. And, and that kind of, of backloading the gospel with your works so that you're not saved unless you work. And Calvin was the one that said, salvation is by grace through faith, or salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. He would always he would add works and say it's an it's a it's a an essential component to faith or something, and they would do this fail to to see the difference between whether you have the life by grace through faith and whether you're in faith walking with God living it in fellowship with Him and so much of the Bible is written for that second topic that totally addresses you believers who have the life and are not at times living it, walking by the Spirit, and so I think this is so helpful. The issue in 1 John 1, 9, as Psalm 51, is cleansing. Sin makes me dirty. Sin, that is the topic. It is cleansing in this age of the believer priest. And that is true across the ages. Sin has made us dirty. And confessing your sins has never been the basis for receiving eternal life. But it has always been a requirement God has of those that are his. It's also a great way to check whether you have the life. I think the first time somebody was invited to consider his sins was in Genesis chapter 3, when God in the cool of the evening said, where are you, Adam? Self-assess, where are you? We want to make that like God's looking around. Where's Adam? The omniscient God who is holding Adam together, pardon me, at the very level of his Adams. <laughs> That's a physics joke. There's more to biology than physics, but we can't see it. I mean, you're composed of particles. Anyway, God isn't asking Adam, where are you geographically located, Adam? He's asking Adam, where are you in position with respect to me? Where, look at yourself. I believe that's what God's saying in Genesis 3. 
But that's because I don't believe it's a myth. I don't believe it's legend. I don't believe it's people that were dumb telling us smart people something that we can figure out what's really going on. I think it was smart people telling us who've gotten dumber that God is calling us to account and always has been. What I'm trying to say is there's an attitude that pervades Psalm 51, and it needs to grab hold of our consciences that personal sin makes us dirty. And feeling dirty about my sin is exactly what I should do. But I don't want to deal with that guilt. Well, that's, that's just the new culture you're living in, trying to figure out a way to get out of the uncomfortable problem of personal sin and being dirty without actually dealing with it. There's no way around this problem of defilement except through the shower. And that's what man in his competition with God is absolutely unwilling to receive. He won't benefit from that initial cleansing of faith in Christ and the blood of Christ cleansing us from all sin. And he won't, therefore, have a relationship and fellowship with God as you do. And so there's no reason to consistently tell God the truth. Father, here are the sins that you have made me aware of. I'm not aware of personal sin. I've met people that are not aware of their personal sin. I, I don't have any. I don't, show me my sin. That's a prayer concern I have. Because David, the greatest man of the Old Testament, is a great personal sinner. So is Moses. You can't find a success story in the Old Testament or the New Testament without somebody that is constantly saying before God, I'm broken. And they need to. And we need to. And what, what do I do with this? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle says, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. We are invited throughout the scriptures to self-assessment. Self-assessment. And if you're struggling with this, beloved, please consider, this is a, a matter of prayer. God, show me. Show me me. But see, that would be somebody who's really there, your creator. Somebody who's perfectly righteous in a way that you're not. Somebody that's got a problem with you and all of us on the issue of personal sin. And the problem is so great that in his love, he sent his son to take care of it. And that's the gospel. We're not uh, sinners because we did our first bad boy or bad girl thing. We're not dirty because we went and made mud pies. We're born in sin, and that's where David will go. In verse 3, For my transgressions I know, and my sin is before me continually. Against you, you only, I've sinned. Evil thing in your eyes I've done, therefore you're righteous when you speak, pure when you judge. The interchange is clear against you. Look at the, look at the, the orange part or the brown part. Against you, the evil thing in your eyes, you're righteous, you're pure. That's the way the sentences all begin. I've sinned, I've done my problem in contrast to your uh, your character, and then you're righteous when you speak, you're pure when you judge. This is what God does about my sin, that God has judged him for sin. God has said, you're guilty. And that's, remember, that's, that's the intervention between Nathan, and the prophet, and David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So verse, verse 4 is a really cool thing, if you look at the complex thing he's doing. 
against you, I've sinned. The evil thing in your eyes I've done, therefore you're righteous when you speak, you're pure when you judge. And you didn't need to see it in the poetic structure to understand what this verse says. But it is pretty neat. He's contrasting himself to God and as the, as the one who's the primary offended party. This is so good to get this. You can't have a King David. You can't have this person, David, son of Jesse. He doesn't exist as he was without thinking of God as the ultimate reality. You're not here, and I'm not here to live in some sort of Baconian scientific mentality, inductively perceiving reality as it fully is. It doesn't work. Bacon had some helpful things, but it was ultimately insufficient. We experience a lot of things in life that aren't visible. And and we can now talk about physics and Darwin's black box. That not knowing anything about a cell because he couldn't, Darwin's ideas have been debunked by actual geneticists. Mutations are not good. They destroy the cell. They destroy the organism that the mutation happens to. It's It's always a bad thing, random mutation. Now, David's dealing with somebody who's really there, who's really righteous. And so the, 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 the snapback assumption David has. Now, as David's up on the roof, I don't have to go to war. I've got people to do that for me. As David's up on the roof, we'll wonder what I'll, oh, fun. Let's have fun as David is destroying his life and his household and setting himself up for the Absalom revolution and all the horrors of what happens to David as installments of discipline from God because of what he had done. As David is setting all this up, he's not thinking there's a God that, is, that I, I live to serve. He's not thinking of him. He's functionally, listen to me, he's functionally atheist. But as he snaps back, as he comes back to himself, as he thinks, having been revealed by Nathan the prophet, who from God received this message that David had sinned, getting God's judgment on the sin, as we read again in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David has to say that this is really about him. It's two different worlds people live in. The people that you're talking to that we're praying for, their eyes have been veiled by the enemy of God. He's deceived the nations. There's a veil over their heart that the one who makes everything how it is, is real, is there, cares for them, sent his son for them. They don't have a perception of him. They don't have a sense of him. And so look at the two ways of telling the story. The Hollywood version of this would disregard God completely and look at what a wicked person David was and what he did. And then it would laugh at him in his contrition that he cried and felt bad for his sin and look what he had done anyway. And then they would roll credits and have been celebrated and feted for the great tragedy that they presented. That's the way the world would do it. What Dave, and, they, and it would show all the horrors of the Uriah's family and, and, and all that had happened to all the, 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 the soldiers that David killed in this story as collateral damage and the, the moral decline of, of his generals and, and covering this up. and It would showcase all of those consequences to David's sin. And we would all be like just completely defiled in the thought of all of these things that had happened to these people that didn't have it coming. Uriah is the most virtuous man. 
perhaps in David's army at that moment. He's, he's who David should have been, as we said. That's how the world will tell the story. What David tells in the story is against God and God alone have I sinned. And that is the difference between a believer and the world. That's the difference between knowing God and thinking in terms of the God who is there with whom we must deal and not. And David was wandering around in the world for, we don't know how long, for quite a period of time to be able to be so callous as to do the things that he did. To have to have Nathan come tell him a parable about himself. And this is a man who has the Holy Spirit, which is a rare thing in the Old Testament and is the commonplace for believers in our age. Two worlds of interpretation. And it's kind of a gut check on where you are with the living God with whom we must deal. In verse 5, Behold, in iniquity I was brought forth, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is not an excuse. This is an identification of my shortcomings. I don't come from good stock, is what he's saying. I, I am born in need of your compassion and your loving kindness. What a helpful message, what a loving thing to tell people that they're no good, that you're not born a good person, and your life's works don't make you a good person. What a wonderful, blessed thing to say. Grab that little uh, audio capture. You know what that pastor said? He said that it's wonderful to tell people that they're not born good, and they're not good people by their many works. Until you and I can snuggle up in that warm, downy blanket with the beautiful crackling fire at our feet, on a bed of whatever your preference, hard or firm or soft mattress, and just rest into the truth that you're not a good person by your efforts or by your lineage. If you can just embrace that thought and snuggle up to that, that you're born a sinner and that's why Jesus had to come and save you. Until you can really rest in that, you're really going to struggle with the problem of self-righteousness. Maybe after you get comfortable with that, self-righteousness can creep in. It's, it's really insidious how it gets hold of us. Well, at least I don't think I'm a good person like that person over there. We get self-righteous about how we're not self-righteous. Be careful about that. Just keep looking to God and stop looking at others so much and yourself and just look, look at the Lord. But I'm just saying, like, embrace this. We're sinners. You're born needing a Savior. God so loved you that he sent his Son so that you could have eternal life just by trusting in him. Because there's nothing you could do about your sin. And that's the human race is born in it. I saw a little quip the other day that said, um, it was an atheist quip that said, uh, the God of love in the Bible is so loving that one person sinned and then he blamed everyone that came out of them for that one sin. That's the God of the Bible. And, okay. But it misses the gospel uh, just a little bit. <laughs> that we were born because of the fall of Adam in sin. And so the last Adam came to deal with our sin. Please don't leave this earth in your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ who has paid for your sin because of places like this where we learn that we're born sinners.
I tend to do an a fortiori argument on this for stronger reason. That's the Latin. It means if it's true for David, much more so for me is the idea. David is the most ingenious poet, perhaps, of the Old Testament. He's got such incredible natural ability. He's a sniper par excellence in 1 Samuel 17. Nobody ever probably wielded a sling as well as he did, probably. I, I think, haven't looked into this a little bit. It's not a, just something people go do is go one shot, one kill on a battlefield under that kind of pressure. He's the great warrior, and, and he's, he's phenomenal as a battlefield commander. The kinds of things that men do, David excelled at. He wasn't just a grog, sw- swilling warrior, you know, guy. He's the sweet poet who wrote the Psalms, wrote Psalm 23. He's the shepherd of Israel. In terms of God's genetic gifts to David and what he did with those gifts as he trusted God, David is one of the greatest people perhaps of all human history. I would put him with Moses again. If it's true that David is born in need, then David Roseland, then all of us, we can say we needed God to work in us. Let me also do a little bit of apologetics with the Bible just very briefly. God is condemning all the human race for its pagan idolatry and its rejection of him in Genesis 12 when he calls Abraham, starts over with Abraham. The whole world has been flooded, and then not many generations later, they're still rejecting God. They're building the tower. They're going to do it their way, and that's the birth in our post-Diluvian civilization of paganism and all the, all the false worship, all the false gods, Babel, Babylon. You and I live in this train of history. God has rejected all the nations and started over with Abraham. But as you develop Genesis chapter 12 through 50 about Abraham's family, what genetic stock these people are, and what it's like to be Isaac, and what it's like to be Jacob, and you learn Abraham gives his wife away twice to pagan kings to enter their harem to save his own skin, for example. Like, these are not great quality people. But God started over with them, and he brought the Messiah through them. And what you're supposed to do with that is not become anti-Semitic. That's a satanic notion. That's where we enter that self-righteousness. Oh, they're there of some messed up stock. Look what kind of idiot Jacob is and all his machinations. You're not supposed to do that with Jacob. You're not supposed to do that with David. You're supposed to say, this is a portrait of the human race. This is who we are. We are a broken and an obstinate thing that God still loves and he sent his son for. They say that John Nelson Darby, one of his biographers, said he couldn't get together with Dwight Moody for any kind of ministry collaboration because Moody was not a Calvinist and Darby was a Calvinist. And I've done a little research on Darby, digitized his works, which is an easy thing to do today. In a way, I could search it, and I searched everything I could that that we could find on digits for the phrases that smack of Calvinism, like tulip, like uh, total depravity, or unconditional election, or limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I looked for these. Darby's writing in English in the 19th century. 
Lots of people are writing about these things. I can't find him talking about those things through my searching, but I do find him talking about the depravity of man and our need for a savior. And I think this is the, the core of Darby's theological construction with Calvinism is we're so in need. Very important to get this because it tells you who you are. And if you can understand this and say, okay, this is what I am and therefore everything about me is God's grace, then you can go tell people of their need and you can encourage them about their Savior because it's not about you and your moral high ground or your righteousness. No, I'm, I deserve to be in chains, separated from God, enslaved to my sin, and I deserve to, the, to in, endure an eternal separation from God in a lake burning with fire and sulfur, but I, I won't. I won't do that and I can't do that because God saved me. And the way he saved me is somebody sat down with me just like I'm doing with you and told me of my need and what God had done about it. If you can get hold of this thought of your inherent need and God's grace on the basis of your need, then you can share Jesus Christ with people. And you can be accused of self-righteousness and all the things that the world throws at the gospel, but you can know in your heart of hearts that it's just not true. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I have a Savior and these sinners need Saviors too. And if you can know in your heart of hearts that this is how it is, you can be stabilized. My problem with attacks we get of the gospel is, or, or of our own att- approach to it is if, if there's any truth to it. But once you've resolved in your heart that, no, there's nothing about me worthy of redemption, but God saved me anyway. There's nothing about me that drew God's favor, but that God wanted to do something with me, and he's glorifying himself in doing so. Once we get hold of that idea, yeah, I'm going to go tell people about Jesus because I'm stabilized. There is no attack you can bring against me. I'll just say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I have self-righteous problems. We all do. And I'm not as bad at it as other people. I love the self-righteous game. It's so fun. Just as soon as you feel like you've gotten rid of it, you you fell off the wagon on the other side. You fell off the balance beam on the other side of the self-righteous problem. And And some of you are like, well, if that's true, then we're just constantly stuck. That's right. So you have a constant appeal to God. You're constantly going to him, right? Because you need that rapport. And that's my question as we started. What do you want? Behold, truth you've desired in the covered places and in that which is hidden, wisdom you will cause me to know. My English Bible cleans that up a little bit to something that more, sounds more English style. Behold, you desire truth in the inner man, innermost being, and the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. My interlinear translation, though, brings out that there is a, an inversion that happens in the middle of verse 6, and it's focusing on the inner person the inner person. Do you want your belly fed, your your stomach filled? Do you want to to eat a good meal and live in a comfortable situation and not have any anxiety about the needs of this life? I have bad news for you. Bad news for you on that score. This is my favorite sermon's message. We're all going to die, right? It doesn't matter how safe you get things your body's going to rebel and eventually you're going to stop breathing and your heart's going to stop beating and you are going to be absent from this body as believers and present with the Lord. And that's what's going to happen unless Jesus does the thing that we know he is bound to do at some point, which we will all participate in, but some will be the dead in Christ and rise first and others who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds. 
But what I'm saying is we're all going to die or we're going to be raptured. But this, this problem of physical death is really what we're after when we're going after security, when we're trying to set up the police or the, or the, the military. It's all because of the problem of death. The feeding yourself, and that's economics, is to, f- to fend off against death. It's, the, it's how it is. Why am I saying that? Because you need to live for something better than drawing breath or your heart beating. You need to live something for something greater than satisfying your needs physically. And this is what David gets at in verse 6. It's the covered places. It's the hidden person. It's the inner thing that you can't, you can't touch with a meal. That a good night's sleep can't really address. It's helping your physical plant and all. But I'm saying the inner part of you. That you show up at church with no sin visible. Thank you. You've shown up without your scrolling sign listing the things that you thought that you shouldn't have thought this morning or on the way or yesterday or, or the other day or the thing that I, if I say the thing that gentlemen, your wife says the thing that is the thing that she's upset with you about and that is not really resolved. The thing, whatever the thing. Thank you for not hitting us with, post, with, with uh, note cards that list what the things are, right? You showed up here outwardly righteous. That's called uh, survival. That's living this life. That's getting along with other people. But there is the truth that only God knows about what's going on inside of you. In fact, he knows it better than you do. And this is the part that God is after. And this is the question I'm asking, what do you want? Because this is what God wants. He wants the core. He wants the heart. He wants you inside out. And he's not so worried about how you look to everybody else because he sees the heart. Truth is what God wants saturating that inner person. And when he gets hold of you with that truth and you trust him and you start practicing what he said, you find his wisdom that he's caused you to know. But it's an inside out kind of life. God isn't satisfied with the trappings of religiosity. As you know, he doesn't want you to look churchy. He wants you to walk inside out with him in real fellowship. And that means inner cleansing and outer cleanness. Now, just as soon as I say that inner cleansing and outer cleanness, some of you will be like, well, I'm all about the inner cleanness part. My spirit is for God, but, you know, we have our sin nature and we do things with our bodies that we shouldn't do. And, you know, you can separate that out. I love God and I serve God and I worship God inwardly. But you've got to take care of the flesh. You've got to take care of your sinful nature. That's the argument Paul knocks down very carefully in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is the temple. Your whole person belongs to God. And so when you do that, when you adopt that sort of neoplatonism, the physical is, is okay to engage in sinfulness in my body, but my spirit is for God. When you do that, you have to tell yourself that your inner person is defiled by false thinking, by a sinful uh, reluctance to let God have all of you. How you deal with your body is a big part of the problem of inner Uh, defilement. But God is after the inner person. And make no mistake, just because I wash my hands, just because I put on my clothes 
uh, and tucked my shirt in just because I showed up on time and everybody thinks everything's fine. How are you doing today? Oh, doing great. The Lord is good. Just because outwardly I look like I should doesn't mean inwardly God is pleased with me or that I have rapport with him. And we're the people, as, as, as committed as we are to the Bible, we need to let this sink in. It's not about my outward stuff. It's about the inside coming out. The inside that God wants expressing itself outwardly. And this gets to where we are. He says, you will purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Verse 7 begins a new sort of stanza, if you will. Verse 7 is kind of a, a break. And he starts making specific requests and they go all the way through verse 12. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your, uh, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. He launches on this set of actions that God, he wants God to take. As he started with clean, clean me up in verse 1, he's going to launch on all these, all these things, ways of describing God restoring him. And he's very clear that God wants a relationship with him. And he'll say, don't cast me from your presence. But he's also clear on the mechanics that sin defiles the inner person. And God's got a problem with that. And there can't be rapport or fellowship if you're walking in sin. So I need you to clean me up. Now, interestingly, in verse 7, David says it in an interesting way. Scholars go back and forth. They, they, part of the conversation they'll have about this particular psalm is why does David say it like this? He says in this form of the verb that this is what you do. It's indicative, if you will. He doesn't command it like he does elsewhere, wash me and clean me. He says, you will purify me. Or you are purifying me is a possible translation. And they, they can even say you have purified me, maybe something like that. But it's, it's, an, it's an imperfect in Hebrew. And it's said in a way that isn't the normal set of imperatives that we have further down. When we get to verse 10, create in me a clean heart is a command. It's, a, it's an imperative, meaning urgent request to God. But here he doesn't use that. He says you will. So what is the sense? What's the use of the language here? And I have my theory. One person says that it is an, a, a, an, an imperfect of injunction. So I'm asking you to. So they'll translate it as, a, as an imperative. Purify me with hyssop. It's an uh, imperfect of injunction. This is what grammarians do is they make up words to describe phenomena and then they refer to those words. And then everybody knows, oh, it's, a, it's an imperfect of injunction. That's kind of a closed conversation, isn't it? For, for nerds and, um, and that's, it's fine. And I, I use grammatical, technical, you know, language to understand what people are saying. It's you really can't talk about anything without some technical vocabulary. But I don't think it's a, an, an imperfect of injunction so much as a, a way of saying if and then. I think that's what he has. Listen to my southern-sounding way of saying it. You purify me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. It's an if-then. 
It's a colloquial way of saying if then. If you clean me up, I'll be clean. You do it and you're going to find out. That's the sense I think that he uses. And I'm just bringing out a little bit of the language here. That's what I think from the flow of what happens. It's definitely in that same mode of the requests. But he's giving him a little bit of a logical structure. And that's why the answer, why does he say I'll be clean? It's because it's causal. If you purify me with hyssop, then I will be clean. I think that's the sense that he's using, and I should make it up. I, I haven't found a grammarian to describe this in Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is so flexible. There's so many things going on that you, know, you can make up your own little jargonology of how to talk about it. We'll, talk, we'll call this the, um, the uh, let's, I'm calling it a conditional. So I'll call it the colloquial conditional imperfect. A CCI, it's a colloquial conditional imperfect. Everybody with me? Learn it and you'll know. You know, you'll learn it and you'll know. Okay, so anyway, you'll purify me with hyssop and the consequence will be I'll be clean. You'll cleanse me. You'll cleanse me. And more than snow, I'll be white. I have to talk about our culture in verses that say I will be white. There are children. And the reason, the reason nobody here is confused about what David's saying, that there's a defilement that makes me impure, and the impurity gets removed, and then I'm pure, is what he's saying. Now, I don't know anybody that is actually white. This is some sort of sand color. I, I, I know what we mean when we say black and white in our culture, but I don't know any white people, and I don't know any black people, in the sense of actual colors, where all the light is being reflected back or none of the light is being, I don't know anybody that's actually those colors. So what we've done in our culture is we've made divisions between people based on amount of melanin in their skin. And you all know that. But the children, because of this thing that's been done, where we've categorized people on their skin color by the, sh- the shade of the amount of melanin in their skin, what we've done is we've closed off access to Psalm 51. Because a little child that's been told that white people hate you or that white people are bad because their ancestors... They will be told that when you read this, that this is some sort of document of oppression. Little children have to be told that this has nothing to do with that. But they have to be told that because that's the first thought in their minds when it says you'll become white. I'm pretty upset about it. It has nothing to do with that. We're singing grace greater than all our sin in a choir. Whiter than snow you may be today. What shocks me is that that sentiment of cleansing from defilement, that the, that the, the garment has been bleached or full, that has been fully removed of its defilement from any stain, and now it's white like it was supposed to be, that that idea somehow translates over into up here, up here. That translates into ancestry. That that translates into genetics. That translates into something like geopolitics. That's the insanity of our time. So what do you do about it? What do you do about it? You insist that we're one people made by God in his image. You insist that we genetically all got off the same boat. Apparently one of Noah's daughters-in-law had darker skin than the others. And we leave it there. We all come from different cultures, and that's really the issue that everyone wants to make an issue of. But as soon as you accept culture, 
The socialists will come behind you and start making about genetic skin tone. Someone stands up with, with dark skin and says, for example, socialism is a problem and it destroys everyone that it touches. What happens? Socialists with dark skin will say, she's not of our culture. Candace Owens. She's not of the culture. Because it's not genetic. It's culture. And Satan, his world system has infected all the cultures. Racism and racialism in our culture excursion complete. What's he actually talking about? That before God, the need is perfect righteousness. And my sin puts a stain. My sin puts a stain. And so the picture is like the, the whitest thing you can think of, which would be snow. In their natural environment, white like snow. It's stark. It's, you, need, you need sunglasses to be up on the mountain with your skis. It's some, some sort of, of shade because it's so bright. That stark contrast between God's righteousness and our sin, he says, I'll be whiter than snow. You will make me hear joy and jubilation. They will shout in exultation the bones you've broken. This is what he wants. Because of God's work, I can have my joy restored. As we close, I want to challenge you with the Hithil stem here. You will cause me to hear. You will shema me. You will make me hear. Joy and jubilation. David tried to give himself a little bit of joy, a little pleasure with Bathsheba, and he found that it destroyed his life. Have you made that moral commitment that you get your joy from God, from a relationship with him? Have you said, it's one of the great things in life, it's what I really want, Have you gone after him for it? Have you said, God, don't let me rejoice in anything else compared to my rejoicing in you? And I'm not saying that everybody has to be some sort of monk or hermit. I'm saying that some of those people have an idea that the good things are the God things. The good thing that you're really after is that relationship with him. Can you say, God, I want to get my joy from you? And even where you've, where you've hurt me in judgment, that restoration will bring my exaltation. Can you say that? Have you committed to that? Have you asked God for that? What do you want? David wants a relationship with God. He wanted to go have fun. He wanted to lay out of the war. He wanted to cover it up. He wanted to take Bathsheba as his wife and have that baby. He wanted, he wanted, he wanted, but he didn't really want the wrath of God and the discipline that came to his household because of it. He didn't want Absalom's revolution. He didn't want uh, uh, Amnon and Tamar. He didn't want his son to rape his daughter. He didn't want the horrors that came to his household as a consequence uh, and part of God's judgment on him, God's discipline, I should say, for this transgression that became a public problem because of David's uh, adultery and murder. You, you don't really want the consequences that come from God on satisfying your lusts in sin. You don't. You feel like you do, but you don't. But beyond that, let's just talk about your life. You're not in some sort of great recovery from great personal sin, perhaps. Maybe it's just that you need to live your life this way, that I want my joy from you. Give me that joy, and he'll talk about it more 
as we go. Our Father, we thank you for the joy of our so great salvation. And we want to be like David. We want you to cause us to rejoice. Even when you correct us, that, that point of the correction, we want to exalt and praise and rejoice in you. Father, we're going to talk in this psalm about your delight, about your loving kindness and what pleases you. Don't let us hide from it, Father. Inside out, get hold of us. Where we have corrections that we need to make, confession that we should bring to you, Father, make us aware. If anyone doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, Father, help that issue become clear to them. Let let your spirit do the work of conviction and illumination. Father, bring us more and more into the conformity to the character of your Son so that we in our way that you've designed for us can walk in the works you prepared. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.